0: You're listening to audio from the Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Father, we love you, and today is a special day, and it's special uh, because uh, of what you have done in history, uh, that you, Jesus, defeated death, and you did it. Uh, out of your love and out of your great power. And so, would you uh, orient our hearts, prepare our hearts to hear from your word this morning? Thank you, God, for bringing us all in here into this room. We love you. So, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to John chapter. 11. Uh, the portion that Ina just read is what we will be uh, walking through. Before that, we'll go to uh, verse one. And as you're turning there, uh, a welcome. I know that uh, on a day like uh, today, we've got a lot of uh, visitors and, and guests with us. And so let me just take some time to introduce uh, our church and myself. Our church is in a unique season. We have formerly been a campus of uh, the Village Church and we are becoming Citizens Church. And so that's happening uh, right now. My name is Jamin. Roller, and I am a lead pastor of teaching here at Citizens Church, and so we are just so thrilled uh, to have uh, all of you, especially on a day uh, like today. So I'm sure over the last uh, several weeks driving around, you, like me, have seen the white Crosses in people's yards that say He is risen, and maybe you have one of those uh, crosses in your yard. The first time I saw one um, was driving around about a month ago. I looked up, and my neighbor had a, a, a cross in their yard, and I thought it was pretty bold because it wasn't even April yet, right? It's like Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Um, but they, uh, I looked up, and I just, I just thought about those words, He is risen, and driving. reflecting on just what that's saying, like what that means. It captures this idea that that sorrow has turned to to joy, and that hope statement has carried the hope of the church for thousands of years. And so it's a kind of uh, life statement, like my skin came back clear, or a statement like we've got a heartbeat, or a statement like I'm coming home. And so what we mean when we say that is we are declaring that um, the earth that has been plagued by things that are sad and evil, those things that plague the earth won't be around forever and the good God who made the earth will never go away because he's risen so I'm thinking along those lines and I'm driving. I get to the stop sign coming out of our neighborhood and I look up and this ambulance just comes barreling down the road, sirens blaring, headed to some sort of tragedy. And that's reality, right? He is risen and yet the world is still in this place where we need ambulances. And so I found myself in that moment, just kind of caught in that Tension, and, and I think that there's a tendency in that, and whether it's because of uh, the tragedy that's still in the world, or maybe just the busyness of life, or maybe it's just uh, the fact that we don't often think about things like this. I just realized that in a morning like this, we could be wondering uh, what He is risen means, uh, not just for my future, but what does it mean for the present, and so maybe you'd say, "Sure, that the world's kind of still in shambles, and what it means is that one day God's going to kind of make it all right." I'm not really sure what that means for me today, or maybe there's even misunderstanding around what an empty tomb has to do with your future at all. And so my aim this morning, just to lay it in front of you for clarity's sake, my aim is really simple: it's to simply um, answer the question of what He has risen means for us, namely to say that the resurrection of G- Jesus changes both our future and our present. That an empty tomb brings eternity into my life right now and secures eternity for me forever. And so we're going to learn that lesson uh, as we continue in our series in the Gospel of John, looking at this story in John chapter. And Jesus just draws all of that out as he enters into this family's nightmare. Uh, This family is grieving because death came to their house and it got there before Jesus. And so Jesus enters into this home of mourning and he interacts with these sisters who he knows and who he loves. And in that interaction, we see him saying to both of them that life is both now and it's Not yet. So would you go with me to verse one and we'll get the backstory and then spend most of our time in the conversation Jesus has with these two women. Verse one, "'Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, "'the village of Mary and her sister Martha. "'It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment "'and wiped his feet with her hair, "'whose brother Lazarus was ill. "'So the sisters sent to him saying, "'Lord, he whom you love is ill.'" But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is close to this family. We learn from Luke's gospel that Jesus spends a lot of time with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's the kind of closeness that most of us in the room only have with a handful of people. And so Jesus is not there, and Lazarus gets sick, and it's the kind of illness that just comes out of nowhere and moves really quickly. And so you can imagine with me that as he's getting uh, more and more sick, as he's fading away, these two sisters who know Jesus really well are probably having the conversation, okay, when do we send for him? He's busy, he's doing important work, but he loves us, and so when do we send and say, hey, we need you to come? And then Lazarus takes a turn for the worse, and they send a messenger to Jesus, and here is their message to him. Jesus, he whom you love, Is ill. Now, this is the backstory for the conversations, which will highlight what we're doing this morning. But I want to spend some time here because in this, you have a unique and distinct picture of the Christian view on death and suffering. Hear me, Uh, namely, that death and suffering exist and it's not good. God is powerful and loving. And those statements don't contradict one another. So they send this message to Jesus. And here's what I mean. What was the ask? Well, there wasn't one. Jesus, he whom you love is ill. That was it. So there's a scene that plays out in my house on a regular basis. I've got an eight-year-old son. I've got a five-year-old daughter. And then I've got a little girl who is about to turn one next week, which is crazy to think about. But uh, often my eight-year-old will come in and he will announce to me that my five-year-old, so his sister, he will announce that she is hurt. Now, this plays out in one of two ways depending on the details of the story. If he is responsible for her being hurt, he will usually come in and say something like, hey, Dad, God says to forgive, right? (laughs) And at that point, I know that he's trying to avoid getting in trouble, he's trying to trap me, but if she just got hurt and it wasn't his fault, right, she fell or she's in pain or something like that, he will just come in and he will just announce to me, dad, Adeline is hurt. And that's it. And in that moment, he knows that something's going to happen. He knows that there's a love in my heart for her and that love in my heart for her is going to come out in my life as acting on her behalf, he just comes in, dad, she's hurt. He doesn't have to explain to me what my next steps should be. He, he knows, right? He doesn't have to say, dad, you're her father. And because you're her father, you're supposed to protect her. And so stop watching Netflix and get up and come and help her, right? He doesn't do that. Dad, she's hurt. And then he knows that what's gonna be activated in my heart in that moment is love that comes out as action, protection. That's what's going on here with these sisters. They just say, Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus, He's ill. And they expect that that is going to produce in Jesus action on behalf of the one he loves. Augustine, he's um, an old, well, dead church historian, and he says it like this They do not ask him to come. It is as if they are saying, It's enough that you know. For you are not one that loves and then abandons. Here's what they don't say. They don't say, uh, because he's sick, it must mean you don't love him. They hold both together. He's sick and your love is still a reality for him. And that's their prayer. And then, and then hear me, the story unfolds and we see that the sisters do not get the response they expected. The love does not come through the way that they wanted. And so would you, would you see Because it's so important right now. I know many in the room hear this and resonate like I appealed to the love and the problem didn't go away and I just don't understand. It didn't go away for them either. They sent the message, he's sick. They watched him die. And I want you to know that over and again, the Bible's gonna be honest about that tension and honest about the mystery that is God allowing pain and loving at the same time. And so they send the message and then they experience the heartbreak. It did not mean that they were wrong about the love and we'll see that. It meant that they were wrong about what they believed the love would protect them from. And it meant that they were wrong about the timing of when the love would overcome the loss, but they weren't wrong about the love. Look, where God loves and still allows pain, it does not mean that the love is weak. It means that the pain has a purpose. And we see that, and that is such a stark juxtaposition to the way that we naturally respond to suffering, the way the world around us responds to death and suffering. Like what's swirling around us right now is this reality that we can't escape death. I think we can all agree on that. I was driving on 121 several months ago, and I, was, uh, I passed a hearse while I was driving, and on the side of the hearse was the name of the funeral home. And underneath the name, it said this, don't text and drive, we can wait. And I thought, that's really morbid, right? Like I was having a good day. But it's true. As unsettling as it was, like if I had looked and it read, don't text and drive, you'll live forever, that would have immediately have registered as false. It's not true. Like we know that, 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 that this comes to an end for all of us. And yet that reality comes out around us in a few different ways. One of those is, is that around us in the world, we just try to distract ourselves from that. Like I'm uh, mortal and I'm limited and I'm just going to distract myself by busyness. I'm going to fill my life with work and work and work and fill my life with busy. And I get this sense that maybe life is passing me by and I get this sense that maybe my priorities are a little bit out of whack. And I get this sense that maybe at the end of all this, I'm going to look back and I'm going to have some regrets, but that's too overwhelming a thought. So I'll just keep grinding. Or we know that we're imperfect and we know that we're fragile and we know that life uh, is is, uh, simply not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. But you know what? Social media is this platform where I can cope with how unsatisfying my life is by doting over the filtered presentations of everyone else's life. And then I can jump in on that and I can post my own filtered presentation of my own filtered life and then just ignore the fact that the likes and comments didn't do for me what I wanted them to do. Look, life is a vapor. Here today and gone today, Ecclesiastes says. And that's a reality that we can't escape, but in an inability to like process that, we can just distract ourselves from it. Or where it gets really weird is when we know that death can't be escaped, and so we try to like redefine it as something good, like it serves some sort of higher purpose. Steve Jobs founded Apple, maybe the more, one of the more brilliant minds of our lifetime, and he was diagnosed with a form of cancer back in 2005, I believe. And in 2006, he gave the commencement address to Stanford University. And in that commencement address, he talked about his thoughts on death. And here's what he says. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. That is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Happy Easter. (laughs) Do you see it? You can't escape it. Jobs knows that. He's... Uh, the man who's invented some of those remarkable things knows that. The iPhone can read your face. It can obey your commands. It can pay your bills. It can turn all the lights on in your house. It can raise your kids. And it cannot keep you alive forever. And so what do you do? Okay, well, let's say something about death that makes it less painful and at the same time makes life less valuable, right? So let's redefine it. Let's call it the best Invention of life. How offensive is that when you consider those of us in the room who've lost greatly? So he dies six years after this speech, and I just hope to God that no one went up to his wife and three kids at the funeral and said, you know, your dad invented some great things, but this death thing is just the greatest invention ever. Like what makes for a great commencement speech is a really hollow eulogy. Look, Jesus does not do either of those Like why I mention all of that is to contrast the natural reactions to pain and suffering and mortality and death with what we get in Christianity, what Jesus offers here. He says this, the illness does not lead to death. Now Lazarus dies. What he means is it doesn't terminate in death. Death is not the end for Lazarus. And the reason it happened is that Jesus would be glorified through it. So hear me, death and suffering are awful. It can't be escaped And it is really foolish to try and distract ourselves from that. It is empty to act like it's something good. But in Jesus, death is not the end. And in Jesus, the suffering has meaning. The pain has a purpose. And in Jesus, the love will win out. It's Christianity. It's true here, nowhere else. And so Jesus enters into these conversations with these two sisters. We'll pick the Martha story up in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the the story moves on. Martha sends the message and waits, watches her brother die. And then she hears a few days later that Jesus has actually come. And she runs out to him and she just can't conceal her disappointment. If you had been here, Jesus. But you can appreciate that she's still trying to fight to reconcile it all. Like she knows who he is. She knows what he can do. And so something comes out of her mouth like, but I've seen you do crazy things. And, and I know that maybe if you ask God, God could do something in this moment. And so she's still hoping. And Jesus says to her, hey, he's gonna rise again. And then you get her response. You get uh, what she is currently placing her hope in comes out of her mouth. She says this, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. In the Old Testament, it taught that there was a day coming called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when time would come to an end and eternity would begin and all those uh, who were uh, ha- belong to God would be raised again and all evil would be rid of the world. And so that's what Martha points to. And I don't know how much she believed that. I don't know how much she was actually comforted by that, but that's what comes out of her mouth. And then the turn that Jesus makes is just so dramatic and even confrontational. Jesus looks and says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's what he means. What you are waiting for, for is right in front of you the eternity that you're waiting to begin where hope is realized and everything is made right that's standing right in front of you it's not an event it is a person he's inviting life and eternity and fullness to begin in her heart in that very moment friends let me say this as clearly as I know how Christianity is not about afterlife with God. Christianity is about present life with God through Jesus that carries us into eternity with Him. It's what Jesus says. It's what he means when he says, I'm the resurrection in the life. It's what he means when he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every in Jesus, everything's changing. The future, he's reaching into the future. He's bringing it into the present, not a life we're waiting to live, a life that is available to us right now in him. And what I'm saying right now is not gonna make a whole lot of sense if the version of all this that you were sold is that there is a God. And heaven's great, and hell's not great. And so believe in God, And if there's anything after this, trust me, you want to go up instead of going down. Well, what do I do now? Oh, you know, you should probably try to be more moral than your neighbor and the family members that you don't like. And um, go to church, but just when other things don't get in the way, get one of those Christian t-shirts that says Facebook instead of Facebook. And uh, sin, but not the really bad ones. Care, but not too much, or that'll make you weird and the greatest problem with that spineless version of Christianity is that I miss Jesus. And instead of enjoying the hope that is not just future but pours into my reality, I end up settling for something that's cheap and fleeting hear me the ache is for eternity with God that's the ache the longing the loneliness the anxiety it's for eternity with God and what Jesus is saying is it's here and it's in me and everyone shares that and if we're not finding that met in Jesus we're taking it somewhere all of us taking it somewhere I I don't know what that looks like around the world I know what that looks like here in the suburbs. There's this just triangle that we float around. We take that ache to these places that just don't quite make it go away, but we'll still try. And the corners of that triangle is up here. You just have coping and it's temporary. And down here we have these stand-in saviors. And over here we have hoping for circumstantial change. And it plays out in our lives like this. I feel the ache and I feel the emptiness and I feel the pain of life. And so I'll come up here and I'll cope. And maybe that is a uh, alcohol binge, or maybe that's a shopping binge, or maybe that's a food binge, or maybe that's a streaming binge, or maybe that's a sex binge. And and I can't stay there forever because I've got a job or I've got a life, but I can hang out there long enough to feel okay for a moment. I'm not talking I am not talking about enjoying uh, alcohol the way God intended. I'm not talking about enjoying art and media and food and sex the way that God intended. I'm not talking about enjoying creation as worship of God. I am talking about taking the ache of my life and trying to reconcile that and cope with that. And all that is is coming from a life that's reeling from the absence of God and it doesn't last, it doesn't last. So then I come down here and and I look for some sort of stand in savior. And maybe there's someone I love uh, who can just make it all go away and they can treat me in all the ways I wanna be treated. And in their interaction with me, they can bring value where I feel valueless and they can bring adequacy where I feel inadequacy and they can just make my hope real for me in my life. Or maybe it's not that, but I'm looking for someone I can be all of that too. I can be a savior to someone. And when I meet their needs, it makes me feel whole, right? And what always happens is I'm always confronted with this reality that either I'm not enough or they're not enough. And I'm not talking about deep relationships, I'm not talking about community centered around Jesus. I am talking about trying to stave off the ache of sin and loneliness by expecting my spouse or my kids or my friends to stand as savior in the place that only Jesus is kind enough and loving enough and gentle enough and patient enough to occupy. It doesn't work. So I either float back to the coping or I I float over here to this place where all my hope is in my circumstances changing. And you know, when this company takes off, when this job calms down, uh, when uh, I have more friends, when I have the right friends, when I have less friends, because I'm so busy, when I get married, when this marriage is fixed, when this marriage is over, when I have kids, when these kids get older, when these kids leave my house, when these kids come back, right? And all that is, look, I, I, I am not talking about being overwhelmed by a busy season and knowing that when things calm down, you'll get more rest, I'm not talking about that. I am not talking about a righteous desire to see God make right a difficult circumstance. I am talking about shifting the blame of my restless heart from me to everything going on around me. And does it ever work? Let's be honest, some of us are right now in the very circumstance we thought would make it all go away and it didn't, and now we don't know what to do. Like maybe marriage made some of the loneliness go away but it didn't satisfy the soul. Maybe the job promotion made some of that sense of inadequacy go away, but that feeling of inadequacy is either on its way back or it's already here. And so now what I'm doing is I'm either floating back to the coping or I'm floating over to the stand in savior, or I just stay here and I am already in my mind dreaming of what set of circumstantial changes will bring rest to my soul. And I'll just hold on until I get there. My friends, you were not made to run to the things in life to hold you together. You were created and made to be held together by the eternal God who gave you life. And Jesus to Martha and to you says, I'm the resurrection in the life. What that means is is that eternity, that longing is satisfied in him and only in him. Look, let me defend that a bit, because you could easily say, okay, Jamin, I get it. Like, I, I get what you're saying. It sounds like what I've heard other pastors say before. But I look around, and I just don't see a whole lot of eternity. I see a lot of pain. I see a lot of suffering. I see a lot of dysfunction. And so things feel so much more future than they do present. And look, yes and No. What Jesus tells Martha here, what we have to see is that Jesus tells Martha, I overcome both a physical death and I overcome a spiritual death. And the physical death is future. That's what he means when he says, if you die, you will live again. He's talking about Lazarus, right? Most immediately, Lazarus dies. And then as we know, spoiler alert, Lazarus comes back to life, which we don't really have time for this, but have you ever wondered what happened to him after that? Like, does he just grow old and then die again? Or does he... And I'm, I am sure that Lazarus probably had that question for Jesus, right? He probably pulled him aside. like, hey, Jesus, thank you so much for everything. But am I going to have to go through all this again, right? And Jesus probably puts his hand on his shoulder and is like, hey, let's, let's pray. <laughs> so there's a physical death that those who follow Jesus will endure. And that's part of what Jesus means. But there is also a spiritual death that is not overcome in the future. A spiritual death is overcome immediately. Look, that is what he is risen means for change in our lives right now. A dead savior is no savior at all. A dead savior can't save anybody. Jesus is not dead, he's risen And because he's risen, it means he has the power to forgive sins and the power to change hearts and the power to begin satisfying the longing of life. To believe in Jesus means that eternity breaks into our life. Eternity raises our hearts to life. It's why he asked Martha, do you believe this? He's inviting her to be raised spiritually before he goes and raises her brother physically. So you can look around and you can see a lot of pain and you can look around and you can see a lot of areas where you're like, I don't see a whole lot of eternity there. And can I tell you something? You can look around this room right now and see a room full of men and women who are not who they used to be a room full of men and women whose lives have been changed and are being changed by Jesus because he loves them and he died for them and he raised them and he has put eternity into our hearts. And if you're here, church is an occasional thing for you. Christianity is a confusing thing to you. One, I I really do hope that even in this moment and in your time, I hope that we have confronted all the Christian caricature to you today. And if we have not, give us more time. We'll try harder. And also if you're here and as you hear me talking about the men in the room who have been changed, please do not believe the myth that that is because we somehow cleaned up our lives enough to make God tolerate us. It's not true. What we celebrated on Good Friday is we celebrated the fact that we had nothing to offer, nothing to make us lovable. Our sin, our brokenness, it required the death of God's perfect son. And it's a scandalous love and a scandalous grace. Christianity, no matter what you've heard, is not about good people getting better. It's not about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people made alive by a risen Savior. In the car on Good Friday, uh, my son had his Bible with him. He has a comic book Bible. It's amazing. And he was reading uh, a uh, story of Jesus when Jesus is on the cross with the other two guys that are next to him. And here's the scene, there's a guy who's a criminal and he's lived all of his life as a criminal and he's being crucified next to Jesus. And then there's Jesus who never committed any crimes and he's perfect and he's innocent. And the criminal looks at the innocent Jesus and says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we're in the car and, and uh, Asher's just processing this. And he said, you know, dad, it just doesn't seem right. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, this guy just says a few words to Jesus and it it just doesn't seem right. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he spent his whole life hurting people. And then next to Jesus, he just says a few words and he gets paradise. He says, it's just, and I could tell he was fighting for words and and here's where he landed. He said, it's dad, it's just mind breaking. (laughs) And I said, yeah, like that's the love of Jesus. It feels unfair Like it's hard to understand. It is the kind of love that breaks the mind and the only kind of love that heals the heart. And that is something that we as believers, that is something that's not earned, it's gifted. And that's something that pours into our lives, comes out of our lives as eternity. Here's what I mean. It changes my every day. Yes, there's still brokenness. Yes, the ambulance still blare by, but because of a risen Jesus, what's true about me and what's true about you, Christian, is that I will never outsin the grace of God. I will never run further than what the love of God can reach, and I'm invited into the presence of God, and as he is restoring a broken world, and hear me, that is the stuff of eternity right now. It's a present life. And then it it is also a future hope. And here's what Mary needed to hear. Look uh, Look with me at verse 28, and we hear Mary's part of the story. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, this is Martha speaking to Mary, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping, he was, remember this phrase, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So they said, see how he loved him. Some said, could not he who opened the eye of the blind have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, here's our phrase again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Mary does not respond like Martha. She wasn't in a place to have the conversation that Martha was in the place to have. She didn't wanna hear about Jesus overcoming spiritual death. She could not uh, have handled Jesus's questions. She couldn't even leave the house. And Jesus knew that. So Mary is in this uh, place of despair and probably in a place of of crisis of faith. So I am sure that what happened was at some point in her heart, she went from, uh, when will he get here? And then that turned into, is he even coming? And then as Lazarus died, that turned into, does he even care? The delays of God are really painful, and we get the backstory, so we know Jesus was always planning to raise him, and we know that it has meaning, and we know that the waiting would show that meaning, and their loss would have a purpose behind it, but still, God's delays, even though they are meaningful, are no less painful, and we get that. I mean, the tomb is empty, and so there is life right now, and yet we are waiting for Jesus to make right what is broken, and the waiting hurts. See Jesus here. There is something really beautiful that happens with Mary before she even dies before she even gets to Jesus. Martha comes in verse 28 and says, the teacher is here, he is calling for you. And in the next verse, it says that she rose quickly. That's not the tense of that word. That word literally means she was raised it's the same word and same tense used to describe Jesus' resurrection. So here's what it's saying, that Mary is in this place of despair and she's mourning and she's confused. And all of a sudden her sister comes into that place of despair and says, Mary, Jesus is asking for you. And there's this kind of resurrection that takes place in her life, this kind of resurrection that takes place right in the middle of her grief, right in the middle of despair, and it at least takes her to Jesus because in that moment what she heard, Mary, the teacher's asking for you. She heard that he has not forgotten you. The teacher's here. He is calling for you. He remembers your name. He sees your tears. He cares. The teacher's here, and he's calling for you, Mary. wants time with you, and just that reality, just that sense that he sees and hasn't forgotten was enough to raise her up on her feet and at least take her to the feet of Jesus. And then when she gets there, she falls and she says, if you had been here, and then she just can't talk anymore and she falls apart. And Jesus reacts. This is where we come back to the reality that Jesus loves this family. And because of that love, the love will win out over the loss and the love will win out over the pain. It says over and again in this chapter that he loves this family. The people say that thing when he cries, see how he loved them. And so here's what happens. That love comes out of Jesus' life in two different ways. One is maybe familiar to us, the other might be foreign to us. It comes out in his life as empathy. He weeps. He cries, he's sympathetic, he shares in their tears because he cares, but it also comes out in his life as anger. The word deeply moved, it mentions it twice. It does not mean deeply moved like he was sad, right? Like I was deeply moved by some sad movie or something like that. Deeply moved, it captures the idea that there was fury in him, indignation, rage, Eugene Peterson's translation says it like this, a deep anger welled within him. Well, I thought Jesus was loving, he is. And there are instances in life where anger is the most right reaction to love. And it's when you see what you love being hurt. What parent in the room watching your child being attacked would simply respond by being sad? the love you have for your child would spill out as anger on the attacker, right? And so what, Jesus, what we see about Jesus here is, he is this deep anger wells within him. And what is he angry at? He's angry at death. He's angry at this this thing that just causes so much pain and has harmed those that he loves and that death has taken again from his creation. And so then the picture we get is that this Jesus, who is empathetic, who is sensitive to the cares of the people, but who is driven by this righteous anger, he goes to Lazarus's tomb. He's not barely holding it together. If you show up somewhere angry, what are you looking for? You're looking for a fight. And so he goes to the tomb As a savior, yes. As someone who's empathetic, yes. But he goes mostly as a warrior, as a champion, who can no longer stand to restrain his power and his love when he gets to the tomb. His love for Lazarus erupts in anger. They roll back the stone and Jesus grabs death by the throat and says, you can't have this one. Lazarus, come out. And you know what it cost him? It cost Jesus his life. The way Tim Keller puts it is that interrupting Lazarus's funeral is what caused Jesus's funeral because he got too popular. He was too much of a threat. It's the miracle of Lazarus coming back to life that ultimately led the authorities to arrest Jesus. And a week later they would arrest him and they would try him and they would beat him and they would crucify it. And Jesus knew it and he allowed it. And he welcomed it because, my friends, Jesus did not come just to take Lazarus back from death. Jesus came to put death to death. Look, in his love for you, he goes to the cross. And in his love for you, he goes to the cross for your sins. In his hatred for death, he raises again to life. And if the cross of Christ is God's wrath poured out on sin, the resurrection of Jesus is God's wrath poured out on death, your sin and your death, my sin and my death. He is our warrior. He is our champion who defeats our greatest enemy. And what that means is that what this family gets here is what we all get someday. All of those who love, like Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, his love's on you and it'll never be removed. And that love will one day erupt in wrath towards that which has hurt you and wrath towards that which has hurt his creation. And one day, just like with Lazarus, a broken hearted, righteously angry Jesus who loves you and hates death, he will return and he will call back from the dead all of those who will hear his voice and brothers and fathers and husbands and wives and moms and dads and babies and all all those who were lost to disease and all those who were lost to tragedy and all those who were lost to violence and we will get back all that we've lost because he's strong and mighty and victorious. We believe it. We know it. It's true because he is risen, my friends. Look. Two things. If you're here, And all of that just feels too far away to be comforting. I get it. Hear me. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows your name. He sees you. And the delay is painful but it's not forever. And the victory is future but it is sure. And that's what you have to wait for. What's yours right now is the empathy from a Savior and a friend who cares about you. Christians, as we close here, hear this. You have already been raised to new life. Eternity has started in your life right now. That's true. It's what we mean by he is risen. It's both here and already, and it's not yet here in its fullness. He's risen. You are alive. You are being changed, and death will not be your End. The ache and the longing has found its place of rest in Jesus. The fear for the future has found a God that's bigger than those fears in an empty tomb and a soon returning king. Live accordingly, my friends. Happy Easter, our king. He's risen. Let's pray. we would just be utterly lost without you, Jesus. What would we do? It's Maybe it sounds trite, but what would we do? Just float around to things that at best numb. But you have come, Jesus. You lived perfect life. You died the death we deserve to die. And then you rose again in victory and, and, and you call our name right now, reminding us of the new life that we have. You call our name right now, raising us to new life and one day you will call our name and we will all together leave all that is painful behind and all that is sad will be untrue. We're reminded of that today. Would you bring that reminder just so near to us that we would respond in worship, and in gratitude. Amen.